Heavenly Father, Lord, our God, and the one from whom all blessings truly flow, God, we thank you that you have brought us into your presence, brought us into this place where we can just set our eyes on you and just gaze at you in your glory and in your beauty, in your majesty, in your wonder. And Lord, be changed by that, to be changed by who you are, to be transformed and filled full by the goodness of who you are and who you've become to us in Jesus Christ. God, as we have been in worship and continue in worship this morning, we just ask for your spirit to really do his work in our hearts, to soften us, to open stopped ears, to open blinded eyes, to soften hardened hearts. And God, we do admit that when we come into uh, your sanctuary, when we come into these places, when we wake up in the morning, we don't always do so with ears quite so open, or eyes so open, or hearts so soft. A lot of times we do come in with many burdens, that we come in with burdens both of busyness but also of guilt and also of fear, anxiety, maybe even shame. But we thank you that among those blessings that flow from you, Lord God, flowed the blood of Christ to cover all our sin and to make us welcome, to make us welcome here in your presence, to make us people who can be called by your name, be loved by you as sons and daughters. God, we thank you so much for that. And God, that is the foundational gift and grace on which every other gift and grace stands. And, and as we enter into the, the season of thanksgiving, Lord, we begin turning our eyes to those other things. And, and God, we thank you. God, we thank you for all the grace you've shown us. Lord, from the moment that we were born to the moment we were reborn, to today, God. Provisions, Lord, that were unexpected, blessings that came to us and caught us off guard, and even challenging times that stretch our faith and turn our eyes towards you and remind us that this is not our home, but that we are living in hope of something greater to come. And God, there are many of us here today that may have some of those kinds of burdens and struggles in our lives that are carrying some pain, that are feeling hurt, maybe angry, maybe even angry at you. And God, we just again come to you, Lord, covered in your grace and mercy, asking that you would help us along and knowing that as a good father, you will. You will help us, that you will be with us through whatever we're going through and whatever we're facing, and that somehow, someday, maybe not even necessarily in this life, but somehow, in some way, God, we will give thanks to you even for the hardships we've endured. God, we thank you for that. We thank you for that hope, Lord. And God, we thank you also for just the many things that you are continuing to do in our body, in our church, God. God, we thank you for the craft fair which concluded yesterday. We thank you for the various ministries that are running, Lord God, all throughout the week in some seen and some unseen ways. God, we thank you for our brothers and sisters. We thank you for accountability. We thank you for encouragement. We thank you for prayers shared together and tears shed together, God. God, we thank you for all these things. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to pour out your grace on us, that you would continue to give to us all that we need and more than we can even ask or imagine. 
God, as the psalmist wrote, Lord, we have drunk full of your grace and now we lift our cup to you again. We lift our cup to you only, asking you to be sufficient for us as we know you are, God. God, as we go into a time of hearing from your word uh, later in this service, God, would you open wide our hearts to receive it and open wide our hearts to receive your sacrament as well, communion together, Lord. God, would you just really be honored in our hearts and in this service? Would you be honored at PBCC? Would you be honored in every one of our lives, Lord, whether we're coming here as regular members or as newcomers or as just as visitors um, passing through once again the Bay Area? And eventually, God, would this thanksgiving and this joy and this love that we have in your Son, would it begin shining a light more and more clearly, more and more broadly, Lord God, in the Bay Area, Lord, in Northern California, in the United States, and in the world, Lord God. God, we thank you for all that you've done, and we look to you for more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The scripture reading for today comes from one of the letters written by the Apostle Paul, and reading it for us this morning is Josiah Paris. So let's welcome Josiah up to the stage. I will be reading from Philippians 2, 5 to 11, from the New Living's translation. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, he took the humble position of a servant, and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Well read, Josiah. Thank you for that. Sean, we are ready to hear God's message for us today. Please come and share it with us. All right. Well, good morning. Thank you, Josiah and Judah. That was fantastic. Isn't it great to have our kids involved? This is fantastic. Yeah. Very good. Well, I'm one of the pastors here. My name is Sean Reese, and uh, we continue our studies in the book of John today, John 12. Now, I don't know about you, but I am a huge Lord of the Rings fan. And uh, yeah, clap for that. Um, When I was a youth pastor, I think I showed a clip from the movies every Sunday morning. So all of our youth... um, like Lord of the Rings too. Um, But I'm sure some of you are purists and wouldn't watch the movies, and I understand that, that's okay. But whether you're a purist or not, uh, see if you remember this scene. Frodo and his friends are trapped in the middle of a mountain, trapped by Balrog, the mighty Lord of the Abyss. And only Gandalf, the, the great wizard is able to stand up to this evil thing. Tolkien writes, Balrog stepped forward slowly onto the bridge and suddenly it drew itself up to a great height and its wings were spread from wall to wall. 
But still Gandalf could be seen, glimmering in the gloom. He seemed small and altogether alone, gray and bent, like a wizened tree before the onset of a storm. And in the ensuing battle, Gandalf defeats Balrog. But as the bridge cracks and Balrog begins to fall, his whip catches hold of Gandalf's leg and pulls him down with him into the abyss. Gandalf battles this ferocious enemy and he dies so others may live. That sounds like another story, doesn't it? In our text today from John, Jesus will say this about himself. But he says it like this, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Let's pray. Well, Father, we trust that you had John accurately write down these words, these words of Jesus, and even for us so many years later. And now in your mercy and grace, would you make these words come alive in our hearts and in our lives through your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, two weeks ago, we, uh, we saw Jesus enter Jerusalem. The text that we associate with Palm Sunday, Jesus publicly claims kingship, but he does it in an upside down way. He rides in on a donkey, demonstrating his humility, his gentleness, and his desire for peace. The text ended, if you remember, with some Greeks showing up. And they said they want to see Jesus. They wish to see Jesus. As I said then, I don't think they want to just physically see Jesus. To see in John is more about understanding and about believing than about physically seeing. So today, we hear Jesus' response to their request. It's a response not only to them, but to everyone, to a crowd. This will be his final public appeal for belief in him. This is love's last appeal. And it's summarized best by the phrase, a grain of wheat. Now our text today has three parts, but it is a very dense text. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to really dig into it as far as I'd like to. But I've organized this sermon around six words or phrases that are listed up there. Lift it up, glory, our, grain of wheat, Isaiah, and belief. So I invite you into our text, into the first part of our text, John 12, beginning in verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, 
save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Well, in this initial section, Jesus explains the nature of his kingship. And that nature is essentially defined through those first four words or phrases. So I'm going to walk through those four now and just draw out a few implications. First of all, lift it up. The Greeks had asked how best to see Jesus. And Jesus responds that all people, all people will see him the best when he's lifted up from the earth. This phrase has been used throughout the gospel, beginning in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. There, Jesus says that just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, this reference to Moses and snakes refers back to that curious scene in the Old Testament in Numbers where snakes attack the Israelites in the wilderness. It's a curious scene. The people cry out to Moses, and God tells Moses to make a snake and put it on a pole in the midst of the people. If anyone who is bitten looks up at that snake and believes they will be healed, they will live. So Jesus, by using this phrase, is saying that when he is attached to a pole and lifted up in the midst of the people, they can look on him and believe and live. He's, of course, speaking of his crucifixion. This king will be lifted up on a cross, not a throne. This is the grand irony of the gospel, which is why the crowd asks questions. They can't imagine a Messiah being lifted up on a pole. In their minds, the Messiah never dies. So they don't understand. And Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, all people will be drawn to me. Yes, we proclaim the resurrection. We proclaim the mighty deeds. We proclaim the mighty teaching. But in the end, we proclaim Christ crucified. Why? Because this is where we see the nature of Jesus' kingship the best. This is where we see the love of God the best with Jesus' arms outstretched for the whole world to see, to welcome the whole world 
into his love. This is why the cross is such a powerful symbol, because it's a symbol of the supreme enactment of God's love. The supreme enactment of God's love. It's the magnetic nature of the cross. As a boy, I can remember being drawn, being drawn to the cross because I knew I was so unworthy. And this God would die for me? It still draws me. Secondly, glory. Glory is another one of those key words in John. Now, it can refer to visible splendor, but it also refers to the character of someone or something. It's, it's about what makes someone or something what they are. It's their essence, the essence of who they are. And here God the Father says that Jesus has glorified his name, the Father's name, and will glorify it again. Now, name is another word for reputation. Glory is character, name is reputation. So when has the Father revealed his character and his reputation in this gospel? Well, it's at least in the mighty deeds that Jesus has done. Those are the works that the Father has given Jesus to do, and Jesus obediently did them. So, in Jesus' deeds of mercy and restoration, he has already revealed the character and reputation of the Father. Turning water into wine, healing the lame man, feeding the 5,000, raising Lazarus, just to name a few. But they've manifested the character and reputation of his Father. Jesus' Father is a God who shows mercy, who makes things new, and who brings life out of death. Yes, God is a good God. And yet, there's more glory coming? More glory than the raising of Lazarus? Yes. There's an even greater manifestation of the glory of God than the raising of Lazarus. Which brings us to the next term, hour. Jesus' hour has finally come. Since the beginning of the gospel, John has been telling us that Jesus' hour has not yet come. Now finally, Jesus says, it's time. My hour has come. And which hour is that? It's the hour of the crucifixion. But Jesus is troubled. It's the same word that was used when he's outside the grave of Lazarus. And he questions the Father. Verse 27, Father, save me from this hour. You know, in the other Gospels, the turmoil of Jesus is recorded within the Garden of Gethsemane. John records it right here. But Jesus then answers his question in confidence, no, no, this is the very purpose for why I've come to this hour. In other words, not my will, but yours be done, Father. The hour 
has come. It's finally here. The hour of the supreme moment of glorification, according to John, the hour of his death. The hour of the supreme moment of revelation, of the character and reputation of the living God. This is why Calvin calls the final week of Jesus' life the theater of glory. Calvin writes, For in the hour of the cross, as in a splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The glory of God shines indeed in creation on high and below, but never more brightly than the cross. If it be objected that nothing could be less glorious than the cross, I reply that in the hour of his death, we see boundless glory. Boundless glory. And I would add, we see boundless love. Which brings us to the fourth phrase, a grain of wheat. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In order for a grain of wheat to be effective, in order for a grain of wheat to do what it was intended to do, it must die. Otherwise, it remains alone, meaning it remains a grain of wheat. But the purpose of a grain of wheat is the production of more wheat. Not to remain alone. So in order to produce more fruit, it must die. As Jesus will say later, he only does what he sees his Father doing. And the Father has exemplified perfect, self-giving love throughout the ages. Not only to Jesus, but to all his creation. His Father, the living God, has existed in self-giving love for all eternity. That's what the Trinitarian God is all about. Perfect, self-giving love flowing between all three persons. And Jesus wants to reveal that to the world. This is why he came. This is the very center of his kingship. This is what makes him tick. He's all about self-giving love to all people as a grain of wheat he will die so others may live but here in John Jesus doesn't stop there he expands his teaching from kingship to kingdom verses 25 and 26 and it's a word for all of us To follow Jesus is actually to follow him. (laughs) To follow him in giving up our lives. See, the grain of wheat is the foundational principle, not only for himself, but for his followers, for his entire kingdom. This is how we participate in his kingdom. This is how we participate in God's work. One of our family values here at PBCC. We participate as a grain of wheat. We live by dying to ourself. Like a grain of wheat. Which means we miss the mark 
if we cling and grasp for power that lords it over others. We miss the mark if we are self-focused, clinging and grasping to exalt ourselves. Why? Well, because we are made in the image of the grain of wheat God. So grasp for our careers, cling to our individual rights, protect our agendas, insist on my way or the highway, and we violate who we were created to be. Clinging and grasping are profoundly unglorious, profoundly unimage-like, profoundly un grain of wheat like profoundly unloving but if we die to self and give our lives away in self-giving love we become grain of wheat people reflecting the grain of wheat God revealed in Jesus this, of course, means we are most fully human when we imitate Jesus and his character. May that be our prayer this week. May we live as King Jesus, as a grain of wheat. But Jesus also adds two promises here, two great promises. The other Gospels, are, if you're familiar with them, or say similar things like deny yourself, take up your cross, become a servant, etc., but they don't have these promises. Jesus connects his statement here with two great promises. Jesus promises that where he is, his followers will also be. And the Father will honor his followers. This is good news. We will be with Jesus the Son, honored by God the Father forever. That's good news. Let's move to the next section, which begins with verse 36b. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of, the, of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Well, what John is doing here is wrestling with the failure of the Jews to believe in their own Messiah, to believe in Jesus now, it seems this was a hot topic to the early church because Paul addresses this in Romans 9 to 11, which is what our guys have been studying this fall. 
Now, John had prepared us for this back in the prologue when he said, he, Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So after 12 chapters of his own people not receiving Jesus, John goes to Isaiah to interpret this response. He specifically goes to Isaiah 6.10 in, in verses 39 to 40. Now this Isaiah verse is quoted in all four Gospels and in Acts and Romans. It's six times in the New Testament. Now, if you don't know Isaiah, that's fine. Isaiah was a prophet, Old Testament prophet. He wrote a really long book in the Old Testament. <laughs> but John quotes Isaiah here because what's happening in John's day is exactly what happened back in Isaiah's day. It's exactly. For example, Isaiah was concerned with light and darkness especially for how Israel would, would become a light to the nations. Now, of course, John's Jesus answers those concerns, doesn't he? Jesus is the light of the world, and he will draw all the nations. The Greeks just showed up, didn't they? The nations are coming. But also in Isaiah, the major problem was that Israel's leaders think they know better than God. Throughout Isaiah, Israel leaders just know that God isn't wise enough to lead them. They just know God isn't acting the way he should. <laughs> and isn't that exactly what's happened in John for 12 chapters the religious authorities just know God doesn't act like Jesus acts. They won't let God be God because they think they know better than him. And this is why Paul will say, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Last week at the men's retreat, Mark Mitchell, our speaker, he went through the book of Jonah. Now, if you remember, Jonah is the one who God told a whale to swallow without chewing. <laughs> That's Mark's line, not mine. Um, throughout the story, Jonah doesn't want to let God be God. And Jonah knew God really well. He even quotes God's self-revelation back to God. He says, this is Jonah speaking, I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. That's God's self-revelation. Jonah knew God really well. And where did it lead him? It led him to a life filled with hatred. He hated the Assyrians, hated them. Those were the oppressors of Jonah's day. And he hated them even more when they repented. Jonah was self-righteous, filled with hatred. And doesn't that describe the religious authorities throughout John? Remember the lame man? Remember the blind man? Remember the decision to kill Jesus and Lazarus after Lazarus is raised? 
They just know. Jesus isn't acting like God would act. But we should not so easily dismiss these religious authorities. Because this can slip into our thinking really easily. Especially at a Bible-believing church. We just know our Bible well, don't we? You know, just last week, I had a friend tell me how they do ministry at their church, and my first thought was, well, that ain't right. (laughs) And I was like, really? Really, Sean? Really? You actually thought that? And I had to repent. So easily slips in there, that self-righteousness. Mark made the point last week that the aim of our knowledge is to lead us to grow in love. That's the aim. That's the goal. The love of God and love of others. The aim of our knowledge is to lead us to become like what? Like a grain of wheat. Well, John then goes to Isaiah 53. Isaiah knew that God was going to save, but he was going to do it in an unexpected and stunning way through a suffering servant. John quotes Isaiah 53, 1, saying, Who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, you may know Isaiah 53, verse 5 is the famous verse. We read it for our call to worship today. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. But this servant song actually begins with this. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and what? Lifted up and highly exalted, same word used in John. Isn't that cool? (laughs) God revealed his mighty arm in the Exodus all those years ago when God had delivered the Israelites from Pharaoh. Pharaoh had been known as the Lord of the mighty arm until God, the real God, showed up and showed the real mighty arm And now in John's time, God's mighty arm had been revealed again through Jesus and especially through his mighty deeds and especially through the raising of Lazarus. But there's one more mighty deed to come, the resurrection. But only after Israel's suffering servant is lifted up. Only after this servant will be crushed for his enemies. Only after this servant will bear the punishment of his enemies. And because of this, later in Isaiah 53, as we also read in our call this morning, this servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. He will bear all of our sins. This is the upside-down nature, the upside-down wisdom of this king and this kingdom. 
This is what C.S. Lewis says in the Narnia series he calls the deeper magic. This is the grain of wheat God who dies so we may live. Verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Hmm. This is Jesus' final public appeal. An appeal for belief in him. John doesn't tell us where or when he says these words, so it can be thought of a last appeal for the whole world, even us so many years later. And the fact that he cries out in a loud voice serves to direct his words to everyone everywhere. And what he says here is really a combination of the first 12 chapters. But his words bring a bit of urgency to belief. And if we come and see and believe, who are we believing in? Well, Jesus, of course, but by believing in Jesus, we are believing in the Father as well. He and the Father are one. Jesus is God's autobiography. In the prologue, John told us that Jesus was revealing the living God, and for 12 chapters, he has done it. The character and reputation of the living God has been revealed. And how best to describe it? As a grain of wheat. He dies that we may live and live eternally with Jesus the Son, honored by God the Father. Well, now as I conclude, I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And let me conclude with this. The Greeks showed up that day. And they wanted to see Jesus. They didn't simply want to see him with their eyes. They wanted to know his character. They wanted to understand what he was all about. They wanted to know what really made him tick. And what does Jesus say? He says, what makes me tick is what makes my father tick. And what is that? Well, it's to be a grain of wheat Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What makes me tick, Jesus says, is for me to die so you may live. Well, we're going to have a time of reflection right now as, as Kelly sings. 
And I want you to imagine that you were there that day, that you were there and you had front row seats with those Greeks. And Jesus looks at you and he looks you in the eyes and he says, like a grain of wheat, I will die so you will live. Amen. Now receive this benediction. Go now in the love of the grain of wheat God, in the life of the risen grain of wheat God, in the power of the reigning grain of wheat God, and in the glory of the coming grain of wheat God. Go in peace. Amen.